2: With one victim on the run for his life, the men from the Sun Gym had their eye on new targets to fund their lifestyle. They found an extremely wealthy and generous man, his devoted and loving girlfriend, and their incredible yellow Lamborghini. But even with the best of plans, once again the gang made mistake after mistake, this time with deadly consequences. This week's episode is The Sun Gym Gang Murders, Pain and Gain, Part 2. Uh-
3: I feel silly because I remembered after we recorded, and then again after the episode came out, and I started getting flooded with text messages and DMs, that there are several actresses that people for years have always said, <laughs> if I were to, if anyone was to play me, they should play me. And then, of course, we always talk about Brian, and Brian texted me, and, he, and all it said was, I have told you for years, it's either... Anna Klumsky or Busy Phillips. And I was yes, like, we, oh, yes. And then he was like, your listeners probably hate that y'all always talk about me. But you're right <laughs> every time that I'm screaming at <laughs> at whatever he's listening to. And then another one of my friends messaged me and was like, I've always thought it was Anna Klumsky. I was like, yeah. yep. So um, and then Drew Barrymore and Alicia Silverstone were the other two. And you know what? All of these fantastic actresses. Mm-hmm. gorgeous women i'd be thrilled for any of them to play me so thank you everyone we also got several reese witherspoons for you they're, oh they're you know what i thought about too. reese witherspoon but then i thought of all the movies she's been in, and then she's usually like so sweet <laughs> she'd have to turn up the sass i think i mean and she's very sassy <laughs> in um big little lies mm-hmm. okay so maybe a combo that but i love her and yeah, I, she's great she, oh gosh I, I just love her yeah i love I love any of them. Currently, I feel like Job of the Hut would play me. That's no, where sure. I'm at in this pregnancy. <laughs> so, any you of, have a whole human in you. Any of these other, uh, any of these other people would be great, dude. This human is something's going on in there.
2: <laughs> Tap dancing, soccer playing, something. I sent you that
3: gif of just Gorny yes. Weaver with the alien coming. Out. I'm like, this is what is <laughs> happening inside my body right now. It is. He is so much more active than Ella was very active too. But he is just like, man, wakes me up all the time. It's it's wild. He's doing So it's not even other.
2: like you're listening to music and he's like getting stoked about no. it. It's just
3: all constantly. Yeah, he's just doing his thing. And he's a night owl. So when oh, I'm nice. trying to go to bed, he's like, it's party time. Wake up, mom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this is part two of this series, which is quite, such a wild story. Yeah, The more I started reading about the movie, too, because you've seen it, we talked about. I haven't. Mm -hmm. I was like, damn, they intended for it to be a dark comedy. It wasn't just like that accidentally happened. No.
2: And then I read the whole complaint of the lawsuit that we'll talk about. And then also Michael Bay's deposition. And it was purposefully, they were purposefully trying to make it funny. Yeah, It was not just, here's a story we're telling. And the irony of the actions and behaviors will speak for themselves. They ask themselves, "How do we turn up the wacky?" Yeah, and you see actual murders on screen that were human people with real friends and family and loved ones, and you think that ah, maybe things don't need to be wacky no. I don't know a lot of
3: reviews likened it to how like Fargo or or something like that just like that dark comedy, which the difference is those are completely fictional. <laughs> hmm pulp fiction isn't based on real people no you know and i mean they didn't even change the names in this one so mm-hmm. it is weird that what the one of the main sources we've referenced for this is that Miami new times three-parter that's what michael bay mm-hmm. uh got the rights to to base this on and it's just It's it's interesting that someone and perhaps it's because he sees things through a different creative lens would look at this and go, this would be funny,
2: yeah. And he claimed in his deposition because of course he doesn't want to be liable that it was all the writers and that the writers optioned the the uh, or New Line Cinema or whatever Paramount whoever it was optioned the yeah Yeah. Viacom owns Paramount so then their subsidiaries optioned the article and then the screenwriters wrote the script and then brought it to Michael Bay and his job is to punch it up and make it, you know, more interesting, more dynamic, more, you know, funnier and whether that in so doing you are kind of besmirching the good name of the Mm -hmm. victims and uh, all the victims, both living and dead.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting choice for sure and the movie got very mixed reviews because of it and I completely can see why.
2: Genuinely I think if it, if I didn't know the underlying story and I didn't know it was a true story it's interesting and it's well made and it does make you think and about you know who's really a hero who's really a villain but I think yeah I get it's, it's upsetting to watch the actual murder of someone be reenacted for comedic effect yeah
3: especially if imagine the family watching that like yeah. the least what- funny thing that's ever happened in their life is now people are paying to go laugh at
2: that's all I could think about was Susanna, who's Frank yeah. Riga's sister,
3: and I'm like, Susanna would not love this. No, 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 she, no, nope, she wouldn't. Well, if you haven't listened to part one, we implore you to go back and listen to it because there's a lot of information and moving parts and a ton of characters mm-hmm. involved in this story that um, it'll make more sense if you if you binge them <laughs> both together. Always. Always makes more sense. <laughs> Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. A.K.A. Um, Busy Phillips.
2: And someone sa- kept sending, I was flattered when they said Julia Louis-Dreyfus, because Anna Klumski, Cl- Chumsky, is off of Veep, right? Mm-hmm. She's also from like, My Girl.
3: Okay, yes. Yeah, she started okay. as a child.
2: Yeah, someone said Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, Anna Chumski and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. It Clums- like- it's
3: like keyword KY, yes. I think. So
2: the girl, she's from Beach. Schlumpsy, and then someone, <laughs> someone said, Reese Witherspoon. And um, oh, we just talked about her in the wheel episode. She's, oh, oh, Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Put it. Zoe That's nah. the one. They said, No, nope. Yeah. Nope. We're not
3: yeah. doing that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then I said, funny you should say that. Listen to the most recent wheel episode <laughs> on our Patreon. <laughs> we have some feelings.
3: Yeah. Um. Uh, but also, oh, man. Didn't you once say that someone, what's her name? Linda Cardellini? She's not funny, oh, yeah. though. But I was but like, someone oh, mentioned if, it's her. Lindy, if it's Linda Cardellini and Busy, Busy Phillips, then it's like a freaks and geek reunion. Yes. Which is one of my all time favorite shows. So good. So, yeah, uh, someone messaged,
2: someone said, Busy Phillips should be Christy and then Linda Cardellini could be you. And I was like, I'm done. I'd be done with that. I like
3: that. She's, uh, She's not particularly, I mean, maybe in real life she is funny, but I've never seen her in any really, like, funny roles.
2: No, I think she normally is the, the
3: grounded Yeah, character. she's more, she's she's less absurd. Yeah, oh man, speaking of My Girl, I saw that in the theater. Oh yeah. I was a child. I That was one of the first movies I can remember really being affected by and just sobbing yeah it seems ups- upsetting for children it's it's upsetting for anyone but just when yeah. he goes when Macaulay Culkin goes back to find that mood ring ugh, I'm tearing up thinking about it <laughs> and the oh, bees yeah, get him. ET. oh god it is like another et <laughs> it's, it's like,
2: like wicker man the bees
3: <laughs> oh have you seen oh. my girl
2: uh, if I have, it was, I mean, a million years oh, ago when I was little. Well, I know those famous scenes and stuff. Though. Yeah.
3: Oh, it's so sad. And I remember being in the theater watching that with my brothers and mom and like being embarrassed to be so upset. So I was mm-hmm. trying to like not openly sob mm-hmm. and you're just like choking down your sobs. But I remember doing that at Selena because I, I loved oh, her
2: so yeah. much. And I was like sobbing, snotting. And I went with my, my friend and her mom and her mom had brought... Pi- like snacks and popcorn and pickles and stuff for us, and the only like paper towel that she could give me to dry my tears had had a pickle oh, God. in it. <laughs>
3: that makes and it so worse. Wiping my face, she's just sculptures. like, "Are you that upset?" You're like, "No, it's the stinging in my eyes, it's burning my <laughs> eyes." And
2: also, I miss Selena, which people have been requesting us to cover Selena, so we should do that soon.
3: Yeah, I've never seen the movie. Oh, I w- I'll be honest. I that was not in my wheel. That was not in my uh. Uh, like, age
2: range or, like, pop yeah, culture? I
3: guess pop culture. I'm trying to think of the w- word it is. It was, uh, yeah, I was not, like, I did not know who she was or anything when she passed oh, away.
2: I was obsessed I told at you how, RCDs.
3: when she died, someone at my high school on their car and shoe polish wrote R.I.P. Selena, and I was like, oh, my God, is this a the student that died? That's and they're like, died. no, she's, like, a really famous singer. And I was like, <laughs> I just, I... That wasn't stuff I listened to, so I I wasn't yeah. aware of her really. But man, now I am. Yeah, and it's sure. a fascinating, very sad, tragic story. And she is was a talent who died way before time.
2: Man, I'm gonna go turn on some Selena after this.
3: I do. Uh, I do love her songs now. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I can't. I, I'm a fan. I just got there a little late. That's which is fine. That's yeah, fine. As long as you get there eventually. Well, let's get into it. In November of 1994, Mark Schiller was kidnapped, brutally tortured, and eventually left for dead at the scene of an intricately staged car crash. Miraculously, he survived. Upon speaking to longtime P.I. Ed Dubois, Schiller was told to get out of Miami before his captors found him and finished the job. But Danny Lugo, Adrian Dorball, and the rest of the gang had other plans. While Schiller worked on piecing his life back together in another country, the musclehead criminals boldly moved into Schiller's old Cutler Cove mansion. Like we said, just very little foresight. I think there's, uh, yeah, I think these people just lived their life in the moment. Yeah, We should all be so present. <laughs> that, And I mean, whether it be ignorance, um, just not being the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree mm-hmm. or great improvisers you know who <laughs> world-class should all be living in the moment they just didn't think ahead which uh, came back to bite him in the ass in the end but at the mm-hmm. time you're getting you're living the life man because you're not worried about what's going to happen next you're just like fuck it we're moving into this guy's place we're taking his cars we're assuming his life
2: they had almost no consequences so no, who can blame them? no
3: indulging in the newfound lavish lifestyle Lugo leased an $80,000 gold Mercedes in Jorge Delgado's name, Schiller's one-time friend and business partner who had led the gang to Schiller after he claimed Schiller had stolen $200,000 from him. Lugo even began introducing himself to the neighbors as Tom, explaining that he and the other men they saw frequenting Schiller's home were members of the U.S. security forces and that Schiller and his family had been deported due to legal problems. Not questioning anything, the neighbors bought the ruse, accepting that the house was now the property of the u.s government
2: my job now is the scam attorney and i tell everybody an actual government official or person that works at the gas company is not going to be offended for you to ask for their badge right
3: i don't even think from what i saw no one even questioned it there wasn't even like could i see your badge they were luga was like hey um if UPS drops something off, do you mind taking, coming over here and getting these packages? They're like, sure. Like they were like friendly neighbors. They accepted packages <laughs> on their behalf. Too
2: they, friendly. They arguably. were Yes.
3: They were loading up U-Hauls with his shit and taking it places. And they're like, guess it's just what the government does. God. Yeah. <laughs> Between buddying up to the neighbors, installing massive home security systems and enhancing the curb appeal with expensive landscaping, Lugo and Dorbal split time between the Sun Gym and Solid Gold, a popular gentleman's club in North Miami Beach. Both men had their eyes set on two ladies to danced there. Dorball, on a beautiful Hungarian woman named Beatrice Weiland, and Lugo on Sabina Petresco, former runner up for Miss Romania, and an aspiring actress. Lugo wine, dined, and blatantly lied to Sabina, telling her he was a music producer that wanted her to star in one of his videos. The two moved in together, and Danny continued to shower her with gifts, despite Lugo being married with a child on the way. But Sabina soon became suspicious of her lover's bizarre work hours and spy equipment, items she didn't think would be necessary for a music producer. To cover his tracks and evade his girlfriend's questions, Danny Lugo told her another lie, that he worked for the CIA.
2: The old I work for the CIA (laughs) ruse
3: to get the girl. Man, bold. You know what, though? He, I don't even think he believed, he, I don't think he believed his own lies. No. Like, we always say, like, if you believe it, it's not a lie. George Costanza. But he's just so confident that he's smarter than everyone else and can just sell it. That he does, man. That's, yeah. what I tell all improv students, fake it till you make it. Just go out there and be confident. <laughs> like, he's he's living in the moment. He's being super confident. I doubt he's funny, though, but he might be a good improviser if we put him on stage (laughs) just based on these characteristics. But we have
2: no notes for you.
3: You're doing everything we're (laughs) supposed to. Also, the music producer line, what a classic trope that is.
2: Well, I mean, and I think think we have the quote in here, but she was naive, not according to those around her. And it's hard for me to uh, see things through the lens of a beautiful exotic dancer not from miami you know not from but the you're country all even things,
3: How oh my gosh thank you?
2: you i mean it's true it's true i was miss romania actually <laughs> didn't want to tell you guys but who is not as world weary or savvy or you know who hasn't become as cynical as i um i guess you know the, But just I've had like girlfriends though who go, oh, my God, I'm dating this guy. And he told me that he was a blank. And I'm like, give me his name. I'll look him up. And I just am like, no, he's not. He's not a pilot. He's not a cop. He said that he was these things. He's a liar. Here is his criminal background search. But I think not everyone's as paranoid as me. So,
3: well, and now you can find out pretty much anything online. Yeah. But, you know, I read like she grew up in. um in romania like watching american spy movies like 007 Mm -hmm. and everything and she really was attracted to that type of lifestyle and i think if you want that you even if you think maybe this is bullshit maybe you don't question it because you're excited by it but i honestly think she totally bought into it from what what we'll see but yeah, mm-hmm. he he gave her a beeper, he had his own code for when he needed her, it was 007. so he really oh he really leaned into knowing that she was into that kind of stuff, and it worked for him. Man. Still recovering in Columbia, Schiller had once again enlisted the help of Ed Dubois, who told him to write down everything he could remember about his torturous tale. As it turned out, Schiller vividly remembered all of it. When the detailed letter and copies of financial statements showing Siller had signed over countless properties and bank accounts arrived at his office, Dubois was shocked to see where the paper trail led, to a longtime acquaintance of Dubois, Jean Meese. I think I would remember pretty much everything that had happened to me, too. I think so. And
2: also, because he was blindfolded for such a significant portion, I bet all of his other senses were heightened Mm -hmm. that he remembers different voices. He probably remembers specific things that they said, Mm -hmm. because if they're saying their plans or using certain terms and you're literally all you have to do is sit there with your eyes shut, that you're going to remember it. You know, it's going to get implanted implanted in your brain. Mm -hmm.
3: (laughs) Having known me since high school, Dubois couldn't imagine his pal was involved in such a scandalous and horrific mess decided to set up a meeting to sort things out. Misa's signature was on every document, acting as witness to Schiller signing his life away. At the initial meeting, Mises memory of how everything transpired was foggy at best, unable to recall the dates he saw people and who had actually been in his office. Admitting that something seemed shady, Mises set up another meeting where he planned to introduce Dubois to Danny Lugo and Adrian Dorball. You know they were all shit in their pants. One thing I was hard to kind of discern was if John Meese really knew what was going on.
2: Oh, I think that he did uh, because he worked at the Sun Gym or owned it, right? Yeah, he owned it. And he acted as the notary for all these things. There's, He either was taken to the warehouse where he notarized it there. That's true. Or... Adrian brought him the paper and said, hey, notarize this after the fact and stamped it and signed his name to it. So it's like either he witnessed it or he lied about witnessing it, in which case the latter means that he's at least responsible because he said he witnessed or notarized the thing that he didn't actually see the person sign.
3: It's surprising that he, if he witnessed the, and I never saw anything that said if he did witness mm-hmm. the actual torture, but it seemed like he was just kind of, Along for the he he was just wrapped up in something and wasn't ever the leader of anything, so yeah. it's surprising that he would have agreed to that kind of stuff. I could see in, it where he's like, I don't know what I'm signing here. I'll just sign whatever. And they lie to him and they're like, Oh, this is uh, this is completely on the up and up. It's it's not a big deal, or whatever. And then they had a woman come in and say that it was Jorge Delgado's wife when really it wasn't, or um, Mark, Mark Schiller's Schiller. wife. And it was just an imposter. And when Dubois questioned him about that, he's like, oh, I don't remember when she came in. He's like, well, this date says she came in on this day and she had already left for Columbia. We have proof that she was out of the country when you're saying that you signed a paper in in your office with her. And he's like, oh, man, I don't remember. So it was really hard from the article to tell if he was just kind of aloof to the whole thing or if he was completely uh, culpable in this
2: and I think he at least knew something untoward was going on because you he's a CPA. He knows mm-hmm. well enough that you don't need to be witnessing, notarizing if the person who the grantor of either property or a bank account or something is not there, that you are very likely perpetuating a fraud. That's a good so, point. So, yeah, of course, he's going to be like, oh, I don't remember, because he yeah. doesn't want to admit that he was like,
3: oh, yeah, I did that crime. I wonder, though, what he was getting out of it.
2: Well, because Lugo and them were helping him with running the gym and yeah. like getting more people in, I guess allegedly that was what he we was supposed to be doing and maybe paying rent. You know, there was probably some kind of monetary I got to imagine there was
3: some kind of monetary compensation going on, yeah.
2: Yeah, that they said, "Oh, we'll give you X dollars per thing you sign or percentage or they of just transfer."
3: Threatened him. Maybe he was That's like, "I too. don't want to I know what these guys are capable of and I'm not going to get on their bad side." I'm not trying to get snatched in a Słaski's
2: parking lot. <laughs>
3: Over the next few days, multiple meetings were set, but nothing seemed to come of them, with Lugo never even showing. Then, by happenstance, one morning, Mies left Dubois and the bodyguard he had since hired, alone in a room to wait for Lugo and Dorval. As luck would have it, it was the same room Lugo had used as his office while planning Schiller's kidnapping. You could not write a fake movie with no. something No, when like I read this. that, I was like, this is... Yeah, this is something out of the movies, which I can understand why you would read this and be like, oh, we got to make this into a movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Just don't make it funny. You know? (laughs) Discovering a treasure trove of incriminating evidence in the trash can, Dubois and his bodyguards stuffed their pockets full, determined to get the Sun-Jim gang to confess. But it seemed that wouldn't be necessary. When Delgado finally showed up to the meeting, he told Dubois he was done talking. And agreed to give Schiller's $1.26 million back from the offshore accounts he had signed over. The catch? Both Dubois and Schiller would have to sign an agreement that they would never speak of these crimes to anyone, especially not to the police.
2: I'm just going to let you know that's not enforceable. <laughs> yeah.
3: Again, <laughs> <First laughs> they're all, very nearsighted and, and and don't understand how things work. <laughs> I
2: love Ed Dubois because he's like, yeah, I would love to sign sure. that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's I'm do it. And immediately call the cops. Where's the pen?
3: Schiller wasn't buying it. Furthermore, he saw it as a way for the gang to gain access to him so they could finally kill him. Schiller wasn't wrong. Lugo's plan was, in fact, to bamboozle him once again. This time, the conman bodybuilder planned to sneakily alter the contract to read 1.26 million lira instead of 1.26 million dollars, meaning Schiller would effectively sign an agreement for 1,200 dollars.
2: Again, that's not enforceable. I
3: feel like this is something <laughs> that a teenager would be like, wait Ugh. a second, I got a great idea for He's buddy. like,
2: I'm going to make it say 1.26 million pennies. <laughs> but like, at the same time,
3: not... like, something that simple could work if these guys weren't the guys that they are.
2: No, They're I mean, a little you bit smarter. Go, you would say that that's, there's no meaning of the mind, so there's no contract, because I intended 1.6 million dollars we agreed to that. You altered the contract. We—it's
3: either an error or it's fraud. But either way, it's not enforceable. What if he changes it to lira? Schiller signs it because nobody catches it, and then he doesn't read it. Do you take it in front of a judge? They're like, he signed this. It says lira. That's not enforceable.
2: Yeah, you would say either try to prove with extrinsic evidence and say you know w- what we had was this agreement and then the judge would likely weigh the evidence in the favor of that's an insane thing why at any point would it be lira like the <laughs> judge would just go that's like nonsense it's clearly a fraud mm-hmm. so uh, you're right though I mean you're supposed to read everything you sign mm-hmm. but when you have you know pre-contract extrinsic evidence that says okay we're gonna make sure to send the money back okay we totally will we're gonna draft the contract and they try to pull a fast one you that's when you there's gonna be lawsuits
3: yeah but you know Lugo was like, thought he was this, just oh, yeah. the big dick in the room when he came up with that idea. He's like, I got it. Light bulbs Figured were it going out. off everywhere. God. The contract revisions between Schiller and Lugo went back and forth for days, via Dubois and Lugo's attorney. Fed up with no money being exchanged, Dubois eventually threatened legal action against the gang, unless they handed over the title to his client's house. Not wanting any problem with the cops, Lugo agreed. However, by then, the damage had been done. The gang had looted Schiller's mansion of basically everything, right down to the Christmas tree and light switch covers. That's some Grinch-level bullshit. (laughs) Still in the Christmas tree? (laughs) Yeah. Come on now. They They took their honeymoon albums, they took their family photos, all the Christmas decorations, the Christmas tree...
2: They even they took every last stalking Cindy Lou Who's. <laughs> I just watched little, the Grinch the other day.
3: They took Ella. the roast
2: beast. Oh,
3: I like the animated. The yes. the live action one gives me the heebie-jeebies.
2: Hate it. Hated it. I love um <laughs> Don't like uh, the makeup. Uh, no. I like uh the original old old that Grinch one's great. cartoon. Yeah. And then the new one is very cute. I watched it recently with Sydney, It was very cute. Yes,
3: I've seen it several times with Ella. It is cute. Who is the Grinch in that one?
2: Oh, it's a famous person. I I can't think of the name, but yeah.
3: I do like Jim Carrey as the Grinch in the live action one. I just can't stand the Who's.
2: Their their faces. Isn't William H. Macy one of the Who's? Yeah, yeah. Uh No, no, thank you.
3: (laughs) It's unsettling. Yeah, mm-mm. I'm out. I'm I don't out. I don't like it. I prefer nope. animation when it comes to that. And
2: that uh, Faith Hill song in that is a song that I hate love. You know which where you one? listen to it So this is Christmas. Oh, or, where where yeah. are you Christmas? Where That's are you it Christmas? Yeah. Oh man, I hate it but then you hear it and it just hits me in the feelings yeah. and I'm like god damn it, I hate this song but I can't <laughs> hate it.
3: It's about Christmas.
2: I know. Except for the little drummer boy which I do hate.
3: <laughs> I told Tommy that he goes it's the best song, best Christmas that's song what there is. That's
2: <laughs> I'm highly outnumbered <laughs> Again, on this. Again, listen
3: to our uh, most recent wheel and you'll hear, it's one of the suggestions we got were was unpopular opinions. Yes. So that's where all these are coming from, as well as movies that we hate that others love, which are probably also unpopular opinions. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but then we rounded it out with the best Thanksgiving side. So we've got some fun happy stuff in there too
2: (laughs) but also if you got some like rage you need to get out
3: (laughs) turn it on (laughs) yell back at us realizing schiller had been right and that the gang never intended to return the money dubois decided to take everything he knew to the police however the cops didn't believe the ludicrous allegations and repeatedly blew off dubois and schiller who had flown to miami from columbia to take a polygraph something that never even ended up happening helpless and enraged. Dubois continued to plead with authorities to investigate his client's case, telling them that with each passing moment, Lugo and his gang of criminal misfits were most certainly targeting their next victim. As it turned out, he was right.
2: Ed Dubois, we should also point out, was not some schmuck off the street. He Mm -hmm. had been a private investigator for 40 or 50 years, like forever. He grew up in
3: Miami, too. He knew the lay of the land. He knew people there. He was tight with like a ton of cops and stuff. That's why he went to like... His friends in the force and was like, you need to investigate this. And some would kind of like listen for a minute, but then it would be like, nah, we can't really
2: do that anything sounds wild, about this. this is,
3: yeah, this is too much.
2: They're like, what do you mean he stole a house? They're like, he stole a whole fucking <laughs> yeah, house. Yeah, I
3: know it's insane, but it really did happen. Yeah, so like it's this so should be a movie. He's like, it probably will be, but that doesn't mean that it didn't <laughs> still happen.
2: Ed Harris will play me. It will be great. <laughs> just you wait. But yeah, it's so mind-boggling that he had so much paperwork mm-hmm. to back it up, and it still didn't get investigated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: One, one, um, uh, one cop or she, a uh, detective, finally did start investigating it, and she even saw like the paper trail and how it was all connected. But then it just kind of stopped there. No one uh-huh. did anything about it after that, so yeah.
2: It's egregious criminal action and just to go, well, we don't really. We don't know.
3: It yeah, seems weird. Especially when it leads to other people losing their lives.
2: Yep. That's the
3: that is where it does. It's where it does lead to. Adrian Dorball had begun dating Beatrice Wyland, the dancer from Solid Gold he had long admired. One day as Dorball mindlessly looked through a photo album in her apartment, a picture suddenly caught his eye. A bright yellow, 1991 Lamborghini Diablo. Beatrice said it belonged to her former lover, Frank Griga, the most generous man she'd ever known, according to the Miami New Times. Born in Berlin in 1961, Griga had moved to New York City in the mid-80s, where he worked as a car mechanic. In 1988, he moved to Miami, where he began working at a luxury car dealership. Wanting to have the money to own the cars and not just sell them, Griga began making a name for himself in the 800 and 900 phone line industry. By far the most profitable were the phone sex lines, earning Griega and his business partner $3 million in 1994.
2: This is a his sister describes as like classic rags to riches, like came with nothing in his pockets and then he had a Lambo. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, if there's one thing we all know, it's that uh, sex sells. It's the oldest industry yes. in, in the world. So... Yeah, he had some other Hungarian connections in Miami, and they kind of all went into these businesses together and were just banking. Mm-hmm, the phone sex lines. Oh, Whew. yeah. It's, I mean, you're paying five bucks a minute to. Mm,
2: the first minute's free. But t- but yeah.
3: <laughs> the first minute isn't getting you to where you need to be, though. <laughs> hopefully not it's just like hi what's your name yeah it's just that and you're like I'm like why do y'all talk
2: so slow it's like because we're trying to keep we're getting paid by the minute i'd be the worst phone sex operator because i talk so
3: fast yeah they'd be like heather that was 15 seconds and <laughs> your numbers are down
2: i'm like i'm good i'm real good
3: it's like no really you're bad though because we need them on the phone for much longer to make our money damn it <laughs> they need um What's his name from Ferris Bueller? Ben Stein.
2: (laughs) What are you wearing now?
3: (laughs) Jerk it. Jerk it. (laughs) Can you imagine anyone you get, you call a phone sex line and that's what you get? (laughs) As someone who's never called a phone sex line, I don't really know what happens. Do people, are those a thing still? I I think so. They are. I think so. Now, I mean, you just have- anything you want at the end on the internet
2: yeah well i think now it's cam girls or the cam girls are the phone sex of today or like only fans and stuff
3: yeah even even like twitch does girls that just like will sit there in their lingerie and like eat food or or just like answer questions and stuff
2: dibs i'll just i'm telling you i want people to pay money to just watch me eat like a bowl of spaghetti
3: okay but you gotta be in like um a lacy uh bra and underwear number to do it done and done which is not my <laughs> thing if i can sit with uh my yoga pants on no bra and an oversized t-shirt and yes. just eat grilled cheeses and get paid sign me up if you, you know want to watch that mess
2: the magic of the internet. That's there's, there's a fetish for everybody. Oh yeah. But...
3: Yeah. If you can think it, somebody's into it. That's what I, I think that all the time. I'll mm-hmm. think of like something just really messed up and I'm like somewhere someone is super into that. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Frank's sister Susanna told forty eight hours that her brother loved fast cars and beautiful girls. One of those beautiful girls was his twenty three year old girlfriend, Christina Ferton a dancer at the Crazy Horse 2 Gentleman's Club. Christina loved animals, swimming, and planned to become a professional diver, according to 48 Hours. Dorball began to quiz Beatrice about Frank's whereabouts, something that didn't sit well with her. She had already been having doubts about the relationship due to the weapons Dorball always carried, and she didn't believe for a second he worked for the CIA like he claimed. To get Dorball off her back, she agreed to have her ex-husband, Attila Weiland, Introduce him to Frank Griga. Shortly after setting up the meeting, Beatrice broke up with Doraball, fed up with his lies and inability to keep an erection due to his steroid use.
2: You know, she was getting interviewed and was like, "I I broke up with him for two reasons." <laughs>
3: yeah, she made sure to get that in there, and that's something that's mentioned a lot in the research that I did. That he did so many steroids. He was mm-hmm. he was uh like five seven. He was not very tall, but mm-hmm. he they're like he was as wide as he was tall he was fucking ripped but it was because he was juiced up all the time and he couldn't get it up and it was an issue with um cindy eldridge who he was with before beatrice while they had an issue too Mm -hmm. eventually he gets back with cindy and and marries her but yeah um she's like it's not just the gun in your car it's The lack of gun in your pants. That is the (laughs) reason I'm waking up with you.
2: (laughs) There's not a gun in your pants, I don't think. Mm -hmm. I did not feel anything. But yeah, there's documentaries on like steroid use and the emotional toll too. Mm -hmm. And it definitely starts to have an effect, I think, on decision-making skills and rage. Rage,
3: yep. Went to uh, Texas Tech with a guy named Rodney that would drive down to Mexico to get... (gasps) steroids and everyone called him Roydney.
2: okay that's a great nickname
3: (laughs) (laughs) but he was also he was probably five six five seven huge and uh had some rage (laughs) there's a
2: i think it's a 1990s and I believe it's Ben Affleck made for TV movie where he does steroids and it makes him like push his girlfriend down or something. And I remember seeing that as a young child being scared. Oh,
3: I haven't seen that. Ben love... Affleck raging out on steroids is... I think. Good. That Oh, Ben Affleck. <laughs> okay. That... No, that makes more sense in terms of casting. I was thinking Ben Stiller... <laughs> Oh, I thought you were thinking Ben Stein from earlier. <laughs> Even better. I'm so right now. But I was right like, now. Ben Stiller could never shoot up steroids and push somebody down. Uh, the Ben Affleck casting makes more sense just because he's cast in more roles like that. But I, don't, yes. I didn't see that. Yeah. Like any good right-hand man, Dorbell had told Danny Lugo all about Frank Griga and his wealth. This solidified things, and Griga became the duo's next target. The plan was to kidnap both Griga and his girlfriend, Christina. Lugo even enlisted the help of his mistress, Sabina Petresco, to help in the plan, telling her this was a CIA mission and that Frank Griga was a terrorist.
2: And I mean, again, Sabina, just, do you think the CIA enlists the help of a civilian to take down a
3: terrorist? She 100% did and was very excited. In fact, before this happened, there was another target that they had. That they, uh, somebody from Sun Jim that was wealthy, but it he kept traveling too much for them to be able to apprehend him. But she was really bummed that she didn't get to help them in that one, which they also said was a CIA mission. So she begged to be a part of this one because and she think, she thought she was, like, doing it for America.
2: Yeah, I think she really did believe it. You're yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. But no. I'm saying just from a World-weary standpoint, really? I mean, that's she believed it. Bless her heart, as we say in Texas. Bless her little heart. I think
3: there was probably a lot of gaslighting and manipulation involved for someone that English is their second language. They're not from here. They probably don't understand how everything works i am from here and i don't understand how
2: everything works (laughs) well and also if you have a person flashing money and Mm -hmm. cars and seemingly unlimited access to everything you Mm -hmm. you know perhaps you would be like okay well
3: yeah beatrice on the other hand was like i don't think you work for the cia because they both of them told these women they were cia operatives and that's and they lived really close to each other because the cia thought it would be easier if they could just go back and forth and pick each other up like they had oh, it all
2: they had a whole they all story had it all
3: planned out it's it really is like two teenagers coming up with this intricate lie of where you were the night before mm-hmm. to yeah. tell your parents like okay it you're gonna crazy. tell them i was spending that at your house i'm gonna tell them you're spending that at my house you you, you gotta get everybody's story straight
2: yeah, that's luckily Beatrice bounced and has pee didn't work, so she was done. But
3: <laughs> on May twenty fourth, nineteen ninety five, Attila Wyland set up a meeting between Frank Griega, Danny Lugo, and Adrian Dorball. Dressed to the nines, Lugo and Dorball presented Frank with a too good to be true investment scheme involving phone lines in India. However, the real plan was to repeat the Schiller kidnapping plot. Yeah, I think they told him it was
2: a guaranteed 20% return mm-hmm. on the investment and I mean normally you'd think that that sounds like a good a good investment scheme but then you you know you're meeting with these two who knows what they said to him and he if he's a businessman
3: he said that they were they were very convincing and that they because he even commented on how nice they were dressed uh Lugo was wearing the $200,000 Rolex he had stolen from Schiller so I mean they looked the part for sure.
2: Yeah, especially with stuff like that. Those the little touches where mm-hmm. a person who drives a two hundred something thousand dollar Lamborghini would recognize a watch like mm-hmm. that.
3: Who's pulling up in an eighty thousand dollar gold Mercedes. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean they they looked the part for sure. But he started to have things checked out by his lawyers and other things, and I think a little doubt started to creep in, but they were pretty persistent and they would give him gifts, like they gave him a laptop and he even was remarked, like, this is very strange that mm. they're giving me all these things, but eventually they got them to agree to a business meeting. After several unsurprising botched attempts at apprehending the couple, Lugo and Dorbell finally got Frank and Christina to agree to a dinner meeting to discuss their lucrative business venture. On the evening of May 24th, 1995, Lugo and Dorbell met at Frank's mansion to head out to Shula's Steakhouse. The scene at the home was busy. Several neighbors stopping by to say hello, Anne Frank's housekeeper also showing up. All visitors were introduced to the unfamiliar muscular men in the room, Danny Lugo and Adrian Dorball. Again,
2: no foresight that they have now been seen Mm -hmm. as the last people with these Mm -hmm. unfortunate things about to happen. By
3: like five people. Yeah. So many. And... Uh, their real names. They've never not given their real names to anybody. Mm-mm. Yeah,
2: and they have their car with the license plate. I mean, it's all
3: God. a very recognizable. They 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 stand out in a crowd. These oh, are yeah. people that can just go commit a crime, and everyone's like, I don't remember remember what they look like or what they are driving. They're driving a friggin' gold Mercedes around, and they're, they're huge. They're huge men dressed in Armani suits, wearing Rolexes. You're gonna remember them. Mm-hmm. Soon the foursome set out for dinner, Frank and Christina following the conmen in their yellow Lambo. When they arrived at Shula's, they found it closed and instead went to Doorbell's town townhome to discuss the deal. As Lugo and Christina watched TV on the couch, Dorball and Frank went to the bedroom to discuss business. Before long, yelling and things crashing could be heard coming from the room. Upon rushing into the room, Christina found Frank bleeding from the head and blood splattered on the walls. Dorball having smashed a blunt object over his head. Expert testimony provided at the trial showed the presence of Rompon, a horse tranquilizer, in Griga's brain and liver, something Lugo and Dorball had planned on using on the couple to subdue them. Dorball then began to strangle Frank, while Christina, helpless, screamed. Prosecutor Levine told 48 Hours that she believed Dorball, juiced up on steroids, had no idea of his own strength, and either broke Frank's neck or suffocated him.
2: The way the movie sets it up is that um, Danny, who's Mark Wahlberg, Mm -hmm. is in the room with Frank Riga, who's played by uh, a guy that's usually playing an Italian person, and he plays him very Italian in the movie, kind of like a mafioso almost guy, and that they're kind of like shoving each other back and forth, and that accidentally the weight from the bench press that's in the room falls on frank Griega's head interesting so it almost like absolves so that's again the problems with having this quote true which Mm -hmm. they just all the marketing was like it's true true story even
3: the the poster for the movie says based on a true story or this is a true story
2: I was going to say some parts it says based on a true story. Other parts it says like this is true. So it's just hard to say, oh, well, they weren't really the heroes when in this case, you have Mark Wahlberg's character and you're they're trying to like absolve him of mm-hmm. the culpability of the murder. When in reality, Adrian Dorball like strangled from mean, he, he did hit him in the head, mm-hmm. but he was still alive, subdued him and then either got pissed off or like she said, didn't know his own strength and it's very personal, very violent takes this man's life and it's played on the screen for laughs like there's a shot a really tight shot on the weight coming unspun from the barbell and then it clonks on the victim's head and mark Wahlberg's like oh no it was an accident i totally didn't mean to do it and christina you know comes in the room and then it's it's played with a lot less culpability i think than what was in real life so it's it is it's easy to watch the movie and go well they really aren't that bad of guys
3: right It's a comedy of dark errors in the movie, when in reality, he had injected him with a freaking horse tranquilizer. Yes. And hit him over the head with something that caused blood to splatter, like, all over the room. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: And they make quite a joke about how the, the room is destroyed from all the blood, and Anthony Mackie's, like, on his knees trying to clean it up. To
3: silence Christina... Lugo then injected her with the same tranquilizer, while also handcuffing her, binding her feet with duct tape. According to the commission report, with one dose in her, the men demanded Christina give up the code to enter Grigas' mansion. She was uncooperative, so they gave her a second dose. Christina answered a few questions, then decided not to tell them anything else. Who plays her in the movie? Um,
2: I can't remember.
3: I, I remember seeing... I know Rebel Wilson plays... She plays Cindy, Cindy Eldridge, right? The one that's Adrienne yes, yes. what eventual wife. Yeah. The other one um, I recognize, but I can't remember her name. It's Kelly
2: Lefkovich.
3: Okay. The plan had been to subdue the couple and then transport them to a warehouse in Hialeah, where they would be tortured, just like Schiller, eventually signing over everything they owned. But Lugo and Dorball had gone too far. Frank Griega now lay dead in the bathtub where he had been callously stashed so he didn't bleed out on doorbell's carpet. Christina teetered near death, pumped full of rompin. Yeah, and she's a small lady. Mm-hmm. So, yes. I mean, a couple doses of that, you're, you're donezo. Well,
2: and also, these geniuses, I think, were not uh, medical professionals, good at math. Like, you know, <laughs> if they're, if it says, you know, one dose is two milliliters, Mm -hmm. they may be giving way more than that, or they may give 20, you know, not knowing.
3: Over the next 24 hours, Christina floated in and out of consciousness, each time Lugo demanding to know the numbers to Frank's alarm system so he could access the house. Barely coherent, Christina mumbled a few numbers. She was implied with more tranquilizer, once again passing out. By this time, Jorge Delgado had arrived at the townhome. He had been up all night anticipating a call from Lugo, telling him the couple had been apprehended. He had expected to assist in the transport to the warehouse. However, he now found himself in an apartment as cold as a meat locker to mask the smell of Frank's decomposing body. Lugo's girlfriend, Sabina, had also agreed to help the men out. She, too, was unclear where the mission stood, after finding her lover crying in their darkened living room the night before, drinking alone. When she had asked Lugo what had happened, his only reply, through tears, was that Dorball had done something crazy according to the miami new times i think yeah the story
2: starts to fall apart that we're professional cia agents when you see the mess and the damage that they're doing
3: yeah yeah with frank's body in the bathtub christina just uh, on the brink of death Dorball sleeps at the apartment that night with a dead body in his house and another one almost dead Uh, Lugo goes across the street to his mistress's house and sleeps on the couch. Delgado goes home to his family. I'm always just floored when you you know that you've got this going on somewhere and you can Mm -hmm. still go and like compartmentalize that and be with some other people. Yeah, the banality is, they're
2: just like, just living their life, putting gas in the car, Mm -hmm. eating a sandwich, you know, knowing what you did and knowing, and doesn't that, wouldn't that weigh heavily on your soul? Any, you know, the serial killers, especially where they Mm -hmm. have a wife and kids or whatever and Mm -hmm. are living a reasonably normal life, you know, otherwise. So that's, and also I think this kind of shows the bifurcation of Lugo and Doorball's response to it, that... Lugo is genuinely fucked up about this, it sounds like, right? Yeah. He's crying. He's like, oh, God, it all went. And Doorbell's like, meh, I'm going to go sleep in the other room.
3: Yeah, he just fell asleep on the couch with Christina's body just, like, laying a few feet from him.
2: Yeah, he doesn't, He's he's got some sort of emotional detachment. I don't want to say, you know, he's absolved because of being all jacked up. I think he's like, he just doesn't value human life that much.
3: Mm-hmm. Now Lugo and Sabina were headed to Frank's mansion to see if the numbers Christina provided worked. Unsurprisingly, they didn't. Furious, Lugo called Dorball back at the town home and demanded he wake Christina up to get more information. But when Dorball tried, he discovered what they had done, telling his, quote, cousin, Oh man, Danny, the bitch is cold, according to the Miami New Times. In the end, Lugo and the gang had injected Christina with enough horse tranquilizer to kill four 1,000-pound horses.
2: Yeah, she was not... I I think after a certain number of the doses, there was no coming back without, Mm -hmm. you know, getting her stomach pumped or something. Not stomach pumped, getting her, uh, like, blood cleansed or something, and they just kept on, kept on. And it was every time she would wake up and either not tell them something or tell them something that pissed them off, they would give her more, Mm -hmm. and it was just, there's no...
3: It's so sad. Which is, again, what are you doing? Nobody can think straight and also English wasn't her first language so she and she didn't speak a lot of English Mm -hmm. so that coupled with she's traumatized she just saw her freaking boyfriend killed she's pumped up on all this who thinks the best way to get her to remember these numbers and tell us is if we give her more stuff to fuck her brain up. And also why would she
2: know the combination to safes that wasn't you know maybe the door code to get in the house maybe. But not that high, not high, but not that drugged.
3: Yeah. To dispose of the couple, the men placed Christina's body into a large cardboard box. Frank's was stuffed into Dorball's couch, the same couch the gang had stolen months earlier from Mark Schiller's home. The two were then taken to the warehouse. Lugo and Dorball purchased a chainsaw from Home Depot to dismember the bodies. The chainsaw was too weak. The men then exchanged the chainsaw for something more powerful. The second chainsaw jammed on Christina's long hair as Dorball attempted to decapitate her. After these failures, the men turned to an axe. Prosecutor Levine told 48 Hours they spent hours chopping up the bodies of their two victims. Afterwards, Dorball placed the various body parts in multiple barrels and buckets and set them on fire.
2: The, this is also played to comedic effect, them trying to return the chainsaw. And they have, you know, the hair is in it, so it's played a little bit differently. And then the cops, or Dubois, is at the Home Depot kind of behind them, so it's like they could see, you know, there. it's this dramatic moment. But the Home Depot lady, it's definitely meant to be funny. Mm -hmm. The Home Depot lady's like, this has hair in it. And Mark Wahlberg, and I think it's The Rock, I can't quite remember, are like, no, it's not. Uh Uh-uh, that's not hair. And it's supposed to be, like, hilarious that they try to cut this victim's head off, and they jam... The yeah, chainsaw.
3: Yeah, it's uh When I was reading this, and there's a lot of detail that yes. we left out. It is definitely not funny. It's gruesome. And it's it was straight out of I'm a horror film.
2: Glad that I did it in the order I because I you know did all the research and I watched the interviews with the victims, the people impacted by it, and then I watched the movie because I think if you didn't know the story behind it, and yeah. it was just like based on a true story, whatever, you don't really know, you would think, oh, they probably put that in there to be funny. That's fake. But knowing all the mm-hmm. details, you're like, oh, no, that's that's a person. <laughs> oh. Yeah.
3: They also, during this time, before they got them to the warehouse, called another dude from, from the Sun Gym that they, that was a cop, but they knew, like, helped dispose of bodies. And they called him to come over and, and help them out the guy came over, saw what was going on and was like, y'all don't have your shit together it and, is. and left and then refused to help them. But like, again, like you're just the, most people would try and contain how many people knew about this. Mm-mm, they're just calling they, everybody. They're, they're panicking and they're just inviting in all sorts of outsiders now at this point. On May 28th, Lugo, Dorball, and a third accomplice Lugo had recruited from Sun Jim, the dirty cop transported Frank and Christina's torsos in the 55-gallon barrels to an area of the Everglades. They then left their victims partially burned hands, heads, and feet in buckets near the 31-mile marker off Highway 75 in an area known as Alligator Alley. Finally, they dumped Frank's signature yellow Lamborghini on the side of the road.
2: They thought they were going to get away with everything by burning the identifying features, like the hands and the head and Mm -hmm. things. But then they left a very (laughs) obvious car on the side of the road that you're obviously going to match up that it's the owner. You know, I don't... Anyone's going to
3: notice a yellow Lamborghini just sitting on the side of the freaking road. Yeah, they went so far as to remove the teeth from the decapitated heads of Frank and Christina, so they couldn't be identified that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was... The level of gore... And violence that they were capable of.
2: Hands-on
3: mutilation. Was shocking and horrifying to me that two seemingly, I mean, yes, they're criminals, they're men, but this is like next level beyond even some serial killer type of behavior. This is, to be able to like stomach that and do that to another human I just I can't understand how they got to that point, the, how they could just do. And Lugo honestly was more bothered by it, and he didn't do a lot of the dismembering. He went in the other room and just kind of like was like, "What the fuck?" And but Doorball, like you said, something had snapped in him, and he was the one doing most of it. And I think maybe with Schiller,
2: it opened the door to hurting a person, mm. and maybe then it escalated, and they do they. The whole bit, the funny bit in the movie, is that the Rock is particularly nauseated by blood or the bodies or moving. Like they do a whole bit where Christina's hand falls out of the box while they're transporting it in the car, and he's you know like making throw up noises. And they're like, "Be a man! Like why are you grossed out?" I don't know. He's an empathetic human, and he thinks this is horrifying. Well, also,
3: that the character he plays, Carl Weeks, wasn't even at this.
2: No, they say that he wasn't even involved in this whole thing. He's a you know combination of like three or four characters, and they just gave him one of the guys' names. But yeah, Yeah. he's because like you said, they started bringing in way too many people, and Mm -hmm. from a screenwriter perspective, you're like, there's too many fucking people in this. (laughs) I'm cutting them out. I'm cutting the characters out. But I think you're right that something snapped in Doorball that he just he's like not just I'm here for the money. That he kind of started liking Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. That you start pulling teeth out of somebody.
3: That's that's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, Frank Griga's housekeeper, Esther Toth, had arrived at his home for her daily work. She was shocked to find the couple's beloved dog, Chopin, barking uncontrollably. When she entered the home using the keypad on the door, her shock turned to terror. The place was a disaster. The dog had destroyed it, and Frank and Christina were nowhere to be found. Frightened, Esther ran down to Judy Bartus's house, Christina's best friend, and the same neighbor who had dropped by the night Frank and Christina went to dinner with Lugo and Dorball. Upon searching the house and finding the couple's unused plane tickets to the Bahamas and their passports, they called the police.
2: Yeah, this is not a Mark Schiller situation where he's, you know, maybe out on his own or he's too scared to call the cops or he would tell us. These people had connections, like more personal connections of the housekeeper, the neighbor, the best friend, that somebody's immediately going to look for them. Yeah.
3: Oh, they were very well known and they had a huge social life. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a ton of people that start looking for them. During the investigation, Judy Bartos recalled to police that the night Frank and Christina had gone missing, she saw two muscle bound men at Frank's house in a gold Mercedes. As more information came to light. Other involved players began to spill the beans on what they knew, including Dorball's former lover, Beatrice Wyland, and her ex-husband, Attila. The men had also been spotted by Lloyd Alvarez, another friend of Frank's, who had met Lugo and Dorball at his home the night he went missing, driving Frank's bright yellow Lambo on the highway before disposing of it. As more and more information was unveiled, suddenly Mark Schiller's wild story of being kidnapped by gym rats didn't seem so outlandish anymore. Police contacted him and asked him to return to Miami to aid in the investigation.
2: Yeah, so even a guy who met them at the house sees them driving. Again, they're out driving a, in at least sometime during the day or night when they are able to be spotted by Lloyd Alvarez. during the day. Yeah, that you're broad daylight going mm-hmm. to drive a very expensive, very flashy. It wasn't just like a black Mustang that there was no. maybe a lot of. It's a $250,000 car. Like idiots with no hat, no fake mustache, no sunglasses, just just them, just driving down the road. Yeah.
3: On Friday, June second, Schiller flew to Miami to once again recount his harrowing tale to investigators. This time, no one questioned his honesty. He gave them everyone's name that had been involved in the kidnapping and torture. Soon, warrants were being drawn. In Dorball's apartment, police discovered Rompen and several foreign passports bearing Lugo's photograph, but different names. There were also a ton of items from the Schiller home, including Mark's honeymoon photo album. Inside Sabina's apartment, police discovered Frank and Christina's bloody clothes, guns, a stun gun, handcuffs, and a Home Depot receipt for the purchase of the chainsaw. One thing that wasn't there, though, Sabina or Lugo. Police learned Lugo had fled to the Bahamas with Sabina and his parents, Five days later, authorities arrested him at the Hotel Montague in Nassau and brought him back to the U.S. to face his crimes.
2: Yeah, the once the, they got the warrants, the search warrants, it's like done- donezo. I mean, it was just game over. They had every single piece that they needed.
3: They didn't bother to get rid of anything. Nope. The clothes, the receipt,
2: I mean, none of it. Mm-mm. I mean, and it's all traceable back to yeah. both the victims and them as perpetrators.
3: And now Danny Lugo's involved as parents.
2: Yeah. Because he's and like,
3: let's bring Samina. more people into this. Let's now flee, flee the country. Yeah.
2: They play it in the movie as, uh, you know, he's going to find even more treasures
3: that offshore accounts and stuff. Uh, he may have been. With Danny Lugo and Adrian Dorball arrested, police set their sights on the other players involved. Throughout the fall and summer of 1995, Carl Weeks, Stevenson Pierre, Jorge Delgado, John Meese, Sabina Petresco, and Dorball's wife he married along the way, Cindy Eldridge, also faced charges. Almost all of them struck deals with the prosecution in lieu of a reduced sentence or dropped charges. On October 2, 1996, the State of Florida Commission on Capital Cases report shows that Danny Lugo and Adrian Dorball were both indicted on 46 counts, including first-degree murder, armed robbery, kidnapping, extortion, money laundering, and racketeering. Jorge Delgado, who had confessed to his role in the crimes for a reduced sentence, received 15 years for the crimes against Mark Schiller, and a concurrent five-year sentence for his role in the F. furton case, according to the Miami New Times.
2: Yeah, the amount of people that flipped on him was uh, damning and alarming.
3: I mean, yeah, nobody wants to go to jail.
2: Not for them. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. The and the uh, prosecutor said this made her like this made her career for her that not in like, oh, she got so much, you know, press and publicity. But she said, you know, she was always about, you know, the law and justice. But she said just seeing how blatant. Blatantly disregarded Christina and Frank were Mm -hmm. that they were so, like you said, that they that was done to another human being. That she said, every time she drives by mile marker 31, where parts of them were dumped, she's like, I just pray for them every time I drive by that because it's just set her on a path for. And so, as you can see, they weren't just charged with murder, they were charged with a million things, as they should be. Throw the book at them to really make sure that justice was served
3: in February of '98. Trials began for Danny Lugo, Adrian Dorball, and John Meese. Lugo and Dorball's trials would happen concurrently, in the same courtroom, and heard by the same jury. One of the two key witnesses was Lugo's girlfriend, Sabina. Prosecutor Levine described her as,
2: One of the most naive women I have ever met in my life.
3: Sabina had legitimately believed that the gang was working with the CIA. Because of this, Danny and the gang shared many details of their plan with her a decision that would come back to haunt them. The other key witness was Mark Schiller, who was able to describe to jurors all of the horrors he had endured. I mean,
2: both of those witnesses, it's, it's done.
3: Yeah. Weren't the uh, Menendez brothers their first trial? This was They were tried by the same jury, separate trials, or maybe it was their second trial, tried by the same jury, same judge, but their cases, it was like this, were concurrent.
2: Yeah, I think it was one or the other. It was like they tried to do them both together and then maybe they separated them or vice versa. I'd have to go back and listen. Um, and then this one, they do have separate juries to decide sentencing, but they all heard the same. They had one jury to hear the uh, facts for purposes of conviction.
3: And that's those same jury members then... Oh, sentencing was a different jury?
2: Yeah, which had that happens sometimes. The, like, you'll get called for jury duty and you'll come in and say they'll say... Uh, guilt or innocence is not an issue. It's already been confirmed. We're just here for you to listen to certain facts to determine whether someone's going to get so many years in jail, life in prison, or the death penalty. Interesting.
3: So what would be the reasoning that they would have their trials together and not separately?
2: Uh, what you'll see uh, is a little preview of our next episode because you would not want to have one person say, I was just standing there watching it and the other person did the whole crime And that's reasonable doubt. And then the other person goes on trial and goes, "I was just standing there watching it." And the other person did everything. And that's reasonable doubt. And you get zero convictions.
3: So their attorneys are kind of playing off of one another too.
2: Uh, Yes, if you had the trial separated, you would that, and you might even have them one go and testify against the other, and vice versa.
3: But if they're together, then that kind you're kind of eliminating like the middleman of confusion here you're like correct nobody can lie because we're all here in the same room yeah you really can't stuff.
2: introduce any kind of doubt when they're both up at the same time
3: lugo and Dorball's attorneys did not put on a case at all choosing to do nothing after the prosecution rested the miami new times called the trial the longest and most expensive in county history with more than 1200 pieces of physical evidence presented and 98 witnesses called John Mises' trial, however, was quite the opposite, with his attorney calling only one witness. Twelve hundred pieces of physical evidence. Because they left behind yeah. so
0: much
2: stuff everywhere. Especially, yeah, if you're get you're being put on trial for all of these crimes, you have I mean there's evidence of their racketeering so there's going to be phone logs you're going to have emails pieces of pa- not emails letters whatever pieces of paper going back and forth faxes things you signed things they had you know had had the they
3: left in the trash can that Dubois God. and his bodyguard got
2: <laughs> you know Ed Dubois like I got a box for you guys I got
3: <laughs> the garbage yeah. yeah so it's
2: innumerable
3: yeah and then you've got the attorneys that are just like you know what Uh, we're good we can't say anything to this <laughs> I mean, what is your defense I, when you have I, Yeah, what is your defense? I guess could a defense for doorball be the steroids? I don't, I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're so when you try to argue that you didn't have the adequate mental state to, you know, because you have the two elements of a crime, which is the mens rea, which is the mm-hmm. mental state, and the actus reus, so the action that you do. So you, you say, yeah, I cop to it, I did the action. You would have to have some expert that's willing to testify that. By taking steroids, you will black out for 12 weeks or three years or however long they were planning this. There's just no defense. As a defense attorney, you're there to object, to make sure that the state does its job, basically, because you don't have a defense for this because there's so much fucking evidence. There's 98 people, especially people like Sabina and Mark, who can say, without a doubt, the man at the table, and they point at your client, is the one that did this. So your job as a defense attorney is to object to... Uh, inappropriate admission of evidence, inappropriate testimony, hearsay testimony, anything that your client could hopefully use um, to appeal it later. So you okay. want to have a preserved error on the record so that you could appeal later. But yeah, otherwise you seem like you fucking sat there and didn't do anything for me. And it's like, no, I was objecting to things. Yeah, I so mean, that's that makes their sense. Job. And
3: yeah. I'm sure they tell them beforehand, like, we're not putting on a case because uh, clearly you guys did this and we yeah. have, what are we going to just get up there? And yeah, filibuster. Like what? I mean, there's
2: there's, you always have the option uh, of
3: filibuster. (laughs) There's the there's nothing they could even say.
2: Red-handed. I mean, this is the most. Yeah. But I do appreciate that. You know, the the DA was like, "Oh no, we're not like half-assing this. We're going all the way. We're going for the maximum Mm -hmm. penalty under law. No pleading out. Because you know, normally you would say, as a defense attorney, listen, client, there's so much evidence against you. We're not going to trial." But for these two, the option's a death penalty. And if you're the prosecution and you think you can get that, why would you plead out? Take it to trial. Yeah.
3: On May 5th, 1998, after only a few hours of jury deliberations, Danny Lugo and Adrian Dorball were found guilty on all counts. Then on June 11th, a jury voted 11 to 1 to sentence Lugo to death for the first degree murders. An additional jury voted 8 to 4 to sentence Dorball to death as well. In both cases, the jurors deliberated for less than 20 minutes before reaching their death sentence decisions. This gets me because of the lack of
2: unanimity for either, but also especially the lack of even, uh, like, you know, Lugo was 11 to 1, but 8 to 4 on Doorball? I feel like Doorball was almost worse with the chopping up the bodies and the choking Frank to death, and he was shooting Christina. Like, he was more the actual actor, I think, in a lot of the cases. Yeah,
3: perhaps they painted danny as the leader which he was yeah but it did seem by all accounts that as it progressed doorball was by far the more violent of the two yeah and the one that was i mean he killed frank mm-hmm. they were both responsible for the death of christina mm-hmm. but then yeah all the he he pretty much did all that body chopping up the bodies and stuff by himself Like you said, I'm sure they
2: just painted it as, you know, he was Lugo was the mastermind or whatever.
3: So the jurors that deliberated for less than 20 minutes that found them guilty for the death sentence are not the ones that heard the case. Correct. You would hear different evidence when so so they do that
2: a lot of times because think about it. You sat through the longest trial in Miami County history and Miami Dade County history with twelve hundred pieces of evidence and ninety eight witnesses. You could argue that as a juror, you would deliberate for two minutes and say, You're "Give like, them kill the death them. sentence." I'm
3: fucking done. Yeah, I want to. I'm go gonna home.
2: kill him because I've been here for a hundred yeah. years and I hate it. Uh, so when you do that, where you separate and you get you seat new juries to uh, to hear selected evidence to determine the death sentence.
3: That's interesting.
2: Yeah. To determine whether they get the death sentence or not. And you do that. And in Texas, it's different. And in Florida, it's different. And you do it based on the constitutional interpretation of your criminal procedure code that's been uh, you know, challenged up to the Supreme Court or whatever.
3: Wow. 20 minutes Dude, they decided. To- and as someone who is uh, – these people are monsters. There's no doubt about it. As someone who is opposed to the death penalty, it's a bit shocking for me to – think that in 20 minutes, someone could decide that uh, another person is not worth living anymore.
2: And at this point, under Florida law, you did not have to be unanimous and they would kill you. The state yeah. can kill you with and a eight to four. Majority.
3: Eight to four is those number 11 to one. You're like, there was one person that would have been me holding out like, yes, they're terrible. They should be put away for life, but we don't need to kill them, too. Eight to four, though, like you said, ah, that's not, the numbers are still against you, but yeah. John Meese was convicted on 39 felony counts, several of which ended up being overturned due to lack of evidence, including the murder charges. Having rejected a plea deal of nine years in a state prison, Meese ended up being sentenced to 56 years for his role in the crimes.
2: I love hearing about people who don't take the deal and then get fucked by the jury. <laughs> or the, the night judge. before,
3: they were like, Night before sentencing, you should take this deal. Nah. Well, Mm-mm. man, 96 or 56 to nine is quite a difference.
2: Yeah. It's not like, oh, they were going to give me nine and I got sentenced to 15. That kind of
3: sucks. Or uh, 56. 56 <laughs> think- is so much more. And you have to wonder. I imagine his attorneys were like, take the deal. Take 30, the fucking deal.
2: For 39 felonies and you're getting nine years, that is a sweet, sweet and deal. for
3: him to say, no, I got this,
2: is That's a, just so arrogant. My number one gripe about being a lawyer is that you can't, I mean, you tell people, here are your rights, here's what you should do, here are the this is the implications, this is going to be the consequence if you don't do what I'm describing to you, and people go, nah, man, fuck you, I know better, (laughs) and then all of the horrible things that you said were going to happen, is exactly what happens. I imagine doctors probably feel the same, psychologists, where you're like, I'm just trying to help, man. And everyone's like, no, no, I'm going to let the jury decide. You're like, like, why
3: did you hire me if you're not going to listen to my advice? Yeah. See you in 56 years, bud. Dude. On July 17th, 1998, Lugo and Dorball were officially sentenced. During sentencing, the presiding judge, Judge Alex Ferrer, noticed Danny Lugo was teary-eyed and nervous. On the other hand, Dorball was laughing, joking and flirting with his girlfriend from afar.
2: Yeah, Judge Alex was pretty disgusted with the <laughs> old Dorball. Uh,
3: it's Wouldn't you be? Fuck, I'd be disgusted with everybody involved in this. It it's just I don't understand people's um mental state when it comes to things like this part of me thinks they are um dim and don't understand the consequences of what is happening Mm -hmm. or they're mentally altered somehow by like substance or whatever or they have they're a sociopath and they just can shut off whatever and compartmentalize stuff and as a form of like almost a defense mechanism Mm -hmm. they kind of just shut down and go about with like how they would normally behave. I don't know. That's just such bizarre behavior. Yeah. It's, it's anytime you see, and I know the Minitas brothers were criticized wildly for it in the trials, like looking smug or laughing and stuff like that. But again, like not to defend any of these people that are murderers, but those pictures can often be taken out of context, snapped at just the right time. You don't know what was going on. Yeah. But in this case, the judge is sitting there watching this guy for quite a while, mm-hmm. flirting with his girlfriend.
2: Yeah, like blowing kisses, smiling, winking, whatever. And you're getting sentenced to death for yeah.
3: very violent
2: things that you did.
3: I'd, as the girlfriend, I don't think I'd be in the mood to flirt. Mm-mm. Though Mark Schiller was initially glad that the men were convicted, he was disappointed they received the death penalty. As he told forty-eight hours he didn't believe in capital punishment that didn't stop him, however, from flying back from Columbia to Miami to be there for the sentencing and give an emotional victim's impact statement before his captors as Schiller left the courthouse, hopeful he could now excuse me as Schiller left the courthouse, hopeful he could now put this saga behind him, his world was once again turned upside down he was arrested by FBI agents on charges of $14 million of Medicare fraud. During his federal trial, Jorge Delgado, the man who made him a mark, helped the government make their case. However, Judge Ferrer, the presiding judge over Lugo and Dorball's case, did something unprecedented and provided favorable testimony at the sentencing hearing in an attempt to help Schiller's case. As reported by the Miami New Times, at the hearing, Ferrer said,
2: I know we can consider anything in sentencing. This case was a very emotional case to sit through. It still bothers me to some extent. And I know that if things were just black and white, they could have computers do our jobs. But there's something intangible about this case that makes me feel like what he went through should be given some credit because I don't think it could have been worse if he was a prisoner of war. So, yeah, that's a shame when he flies back to see them yeah. sentence is I mean, they arrest him on the courthouse steps like yeah. they they pounced. And the prosecutor said, you know, of the doorbell in Lugo's case said, I mean, did he commit a fraud? You know, did he commit Medicare fraud? Yeah. Should he have been prosecuted? That's up to the federal government. I mean, she kind of almost said it like I probably wouldn't have gone after him. But I mean, what are you really going to gain? What are you gaining from this? And what he literally was targeted because he did the Medicare fraud, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's one of those like, what's the purpose of justice like? Is the purpose of our justice system punitive? Are we punishing Mark Schiller for what he did? Is it restorative because you want to make him feel bad for what he did and he's going to be better? Is it, you know, if he owes a debt to society so he should pay it back? I mean, if it's punitive, the man has suffered enough. Yeah, I mean, yeah. worse than any kind of prison. So those are kind of like, it's you know, it's competing theories of justice of like, should you, if as the federal prosecutor, you have the opportunity to bring this case or not, And then do you say, well, it's my responsibility to uphold the law. And the law says if someone does this, then I have to go after them, even if they've already been significantly tortured and have, you know, none of the spoils of the money he's stolen. Did he really even get to enjoy?
3: Yeah. Yeah. His attorneys told him too, you don't need to fly back for that sentencing. Just put it all behind you. And he kind of wanted he was like, no, this is the final piece of the puzzle this is something i need to do i need to see you know speak my piece to these guys had he not flown back Mm -mm. yeah but he also said he was super pissed and hurt that he had helped for years the prosecution with their case Mm -hmm. flying back giving them evidence everything the whole time they know at the end of this he's going to be arrested yeah and they kind of just hung him out to dry and and you know, kept him around to to help their case, but I mean, to be fair, it's two that was gonna separate, to him.
2: You know, it's like two separate entities that are getting him. So the the state level is you know getting the help from him, and then the federal prosecutors are the ones that are coming in. And you know, Judge Alex tried. You know, he came in and said, "Please don't put him away." The prosecutor at the state level, I don't think, has any pull with the federal. You know, people to say, "Don't do your job." But it is kind of shitty that overall, you know, you're helping and they say, OK, well, see you later. Yeah. Have a
3: nice day. Go, out, go out in the front of the courthouse. They're like, Yeah, he gives this emotional victim's impact statement and everyone in there that was involved in the case knows as soon as he walks out those doors, his ass is getting <laughs> arrested.
2: Handcuffs yeah. going
3: on. I think, like you said, he already paid his debt to the society as far as uh, punishment goes. Should he have to pay back the money? That's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe pay back your victims. It, it, regardless that you didn't get a chance to enjoy it. That's not really the point. Like he doesn't. But he's also they he doesn't have any money at this point. No, he's yeah, he's wiped out. Yeah. And in theory, the victim was the
2: federal government. So with Medicare fraud, he's not hurting, mm-hmm. you know, the
3: that's true. his scheme.
2: He was just taking money from the government. So we're all the victims as taxpayers.
3: Yeah, that's true. He owes me some money then. You know what? Keep (laughs) it. I think he's been through enough.
2: I'm fine. After reading (laughs) the detailed descriptions
3: of the shit he endured, I'm right. I'm good. On March 17, 1999, Schiller was sentenced to 46 months in prison for Medicare fraud, the most lenient sentence available under federal guidelines. In addition, he was forced to pay back $130,000 in restitution.
2: I'm pretty sure I'm correct on this, but federal prison is day for day, so you don't get out early on good behavior. So he so served... he was
3: in for 46 months to yeah. the day. Yeah. In April of 2013, Paramount Pictures released Pain and Gain, a film inspired by the three-part series in the Miami New Times. Directed by Michael Bay, the film received mixed reviews, with many criticizing it for being a dark comedy about very real and horrifying events. The families of the victims as well as the surviving victims, were especially traumatized. Mark Schiller, who received no compensation from the movie, told 48 Hours,
2: The comedy was unfortunate because there was nothing funny about this.
3: On April 21, 2014, Schiller filed a federal lawsuit against Viacom, Paramount Pictures, Michael Bay, the screenwriters, and Mark Wahlberg over Schiller's portrayal in the film. The complaint pointed out the many times that the film and its advertising claimed that it was a true story. Schiller specifically complained that he was
2: Falsely depicted as a deplorable, unlikable, sleazy, rude, abrasive, womanizing braggart who committed dishonest and illegal acts, used alcohol and drugs, was deprecating toward women, foreigners and others, and who was verbally abusive to his employees.
3: Schiller alleged this was done in order to demonize him and generate sympathy for the main characters. Even though his character's name was changed to Victor Kershaw, Schiller alleged that change was not enough to prevent the audience from easily figuring out the movie was depicting him. The complaint listed each line and defamatory instance in the movie, including Tony Shalhoub flipping off the camera and screaming, Asswipe! The case was eventually settled for an undisclosed amount in April of 2016.
2: Yeah, it's extensive. They're like, at one point, he... He says something about, oh, you foreigners can't drive. And I mean, they do make him into an asshole. And so it's the question's always like, OK, is being depicted as a person who gives the double burden yell asswipe defamatory?
3: Yeah. Uh, again, like we talked about in the first one, is it really all this false or do you just not want to see yourself depicted like that on <laughs> on the screen. <laughs> is it stuff that you did? The other
2: thing was so they changed the name to Victor Kershaw and make him an Argentinian Jewish person. And Mark Schiller is Colombian Jewish. And in the Michael Bay deposition, Michael Bay has this whole thing about how they're the prosecution well, not prosecution, but the plaintiff's attorney, Mark Schiller's attorney, is arguing that they were trying poorly to cover up that it was Mark Schiller by making these, you know, minute changes, by making Victor Kershaw his name, by making him Argentinian instead of Colombian. And Michael Bay's like, no, it's funnier. Argentinian Jew is funny and Colombian Jew is not funny. And the plaintiff's attorney goes, I'm sorry, Argentinian Jew is funny. And Michael Bay's like, yeah, hear Hear it when you say it. It's funny when you say it. And the plaintiff's attorney's like, I'm sorry, I don't hear it. Oh, yikes. (laughs) It's so yikes. And he also (laughs) (laughs) mentions Donald Trump complaint. He's like, you know, some people say things that are offensive and abrasive, but it's just like your old uncle or like Donald Trump. It's fine. And I'm like, oh god,
3: no, that's Why? not fine. Don't. We've don't. seen how not fine it is. Yeah, let's
2: don't. Let's not bring that into it. <laughs> like Michael Bay, you are digging yourself just yeah. deeper and deeper in. So they he probably gave Mark Kershaw or Mark Schiller a significant amount. of Yeah. Money. He also wrote two books on it, so I think he, he's at least hopefully made some money off of it.
3: Why would you sue Wahlberg, but none of the other actors? Uh, Wahlberg was sued in his capacity as producer. Oh, okay. That makes sense.
2: Yeah. And there were several other producers, but there was such a laundry list. Those are the pertinent gotcha. celebs.
3: Yeah, because I was like, well, he didn't uh, play him, but I didn't see Tony Shaloub's name. But again, like, Tony Shaloub shouldn't be sued. He's just doing what the script tells him to do. Yeah. He didn't have any a uh, dog in that fight or any you know, state of what was going on?
2: Suing people that either wrote it or produced it mm-hmm. or like made it. And they also, I mean, it, the complaint is line by line by line every single time that Mark, that Victor Kershaw is an asshole in the movie and it has timestamps. And I'm like, some associate at this big law firm had to watch <laughs> Pain and Gain and wait for Tony Shalib to be a dick. Pause the thing, write down what he did,
3: write down the oof yep. And I was like, what a job, man. That is, since being sentenced, both Lugo and Dorball have filed multiple appeals. Lugo claimed his trials for racketeering, the Schiller incident, and the murders of Frank and Christina should have been separated. The Florida Supreme Court disagreed, finding no reversible errors in the trial court's decision, and affirmed the convictions and sentences on February 20, 2003. His petitions to the U.S. Supreme Court were also repeatedly denied. On January 12, 2010, Lugo filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus in the United States District Court. Southern District of Florida, but it was dismissed in July of 2011. Dorbell appealed based on the non-unanimous nature of his death sentence. This was in line with multiple other Florida death row inmates who appealed following a 2016 United States Supreme Court ruling that Florida's death penalty sentencing system, which allowed inmates to be sentenced to death, even without a unanimous jury decision, was unconstitutional. As of now, he is no longer on death row, until the prosecutors seek a new sentencing hearing so he waits not on they retroactively dismissed his sentencing because of this 2016 law that came around saying it's unconstitutional if it's not unanimous Mm -hmm. is that common where you something was done before the law came into play but you can get it to apply to your case
2: Yeah, I mean, it would just depend on the wording in the Supreme Court decision. Um, But if the Supreme Court says, now that we're seeing this law that's been going on, we're saying that every time that it's ever been applied, back and Mm. forth, it's always been and will always be henceforth unconstitutional, then yeah, you can go back and appeal. They don't always do that, but it just, like I said, it would depend on the wording. So that kind of released a flurry of uh, rightful, I would think, Appeals uh for death sentencing. Sure. That, I mean, what if you get a, uh, you know, what is there, 12 jurors and you get w- by one person, by one vote, you get sentenced to death? Isn't it majority though? That's what I'm saying, by one majority. So you get a seven oh, to five. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you got a yeah. seven to five and you're like, oh God, that was one single person yeah. thought I was a dick and now <laughs> I'm going to get executed.
3: Yep. So both of them are no longer on death row.
2: I think, so I was trying to trace Lugo's appeals. I don't know that he's appealed any further.
3: That would be silly if they hadn't.
2: Yeah, they probably will. So you just... Uh, so now
3: you get a new trial, a new a... jury, and see if you can get a unanimous decision of death?
2: So if they don't pursue a new sentencing hearing, then they'll just be in, uh, in jail, life without parole. Mm-hmm. And then if they do, then the state would have to, you know, get a unanimous jury to determine, to sentence them to death. So I think in several of these cases, the prosecutors are like, They're already in jail for life. What are we... You know, it doesn't... You're not undoing the merits of the case. You're still convicted of premeditated first-degree murder and a bunch of other stuff. So it's kind of like why... You know, unless you just had a prosecutor or, you know, a district attorney who was like, we're going to reopen every single death penalty case and we're going to try to go and get the death penalty for every single person that's appealed. You just go, we don't have the resources and is this really important? Like, is this a priority for us to... Especially with the shift away from the popularity of the death penalty that Mm -hmm. we're not going to spend state resources when this person's going to be in jail for the rest of their life anyway.
3: Especially when it was the most expensive and lengthy trial in Miami-Dade history. You're going to do that all over again to maybe just get the same outcome that you already have.
2: Yeah, especially eight to four. It's not like it was, you know, with Lugo, he was off by one. But you know, when it's that much, like, you know, that it was like 50-50 with giving mm-hmm. Doorball the death sentence. You know, are you going to spend the time and the resources to do it?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, what do we think? Anything else to add? I think we we covered it. I just, I
2: mean, it's hard because I think we're both, you know, comedians and creative people and writers and thoughtful about making making up fake stories on stage and stuff. But there are certain things that I think are not ripe for the plucking for mm-hmm. humor or you could be inspired by something but there's no need to follow it strand by strand down to the point of reenacting a vicious murder
3: yeah i've been trying to think if there's another movie like that people have been sending when
2: we said you know guess what it is there's four or five movies out that that are like that like 30 minutes or less was one and i'm trying to remember the other names where
3: they it was it's horrible crimes that they depicted as kind of funny
2: well that's yeah based on a true story i don't know that i've never seen that i don't know but uh, this one is damning
3: yeah it's um like i haven't seen it and i don't plan on it because what's the point but i hope that um Maybe it sets a precedence, even though this was quite some time ago, that um, some things, yeah, some things you just leave alone. There's yeah, no they, need to. If, if you like this story, then just change it enough to where it's inspired by yeah. or something. Change the names or just, you know, use like little snippets of it in a brand new screenplay you write or something.
2: And that's Mary Carr is a famous memoir writer and professor. And she's like, there's nothing that says just because you're creating art based on a, something that truthfully happened that you have to be harmful when you do it. And may, if they're blonde, make them a brunette. If they're tall, make them short. If they're from Texas, make them from Arkansas. You know, there's certain things that you can change enough that it isn't propping up a person who suffered in Mark Schiller's case a significant amount in Frank and Christina's case the ultimate price Mm -hmm. and prop them up as you know characters
3: yeah or just don't do it as a comedy
2: yeah that's true too and make it you know the make like what they tried what michael bay tried to say they were doing was that mark schiller was the he was the hero the whole time and it's like his face isn't on any of the posters so i'm Mm -hmm. pretty sure he wasn't
3: yeah and you didn't pay him for anything his likeness or anything and Mm -mm. if you're also trying to say you changed it enough to where no one would know it was him but then in the same breath you're saying he was the hero yes both you can't have both those things be true michael bay
2: which is why they settled for a significant amount of money (laughs) and i think like you said if it sets a precedent it says if anything it tells other studios paramount pictures maybe didn't lose a lawsuit but they sure spent a shitload of money Probably not more money than they made on the movie. But they spent a shitload of money and also some bad press doing this. Yeah. And it impacted the reviews, too.
3: Namely, yours. You've given a scathing (laughs) review. And this movie is probably... Let's all check the Rotten Tomatoes. It
2: emotionally harms me to say negative things about The Rock ever.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, but... And that's the thing. His character wasn't even involved in... Because his name in the movie is Carl Weeks, right? I believe that is correct. That Who is a real person that was involved in this? Who was involved in the Schiller stuff? He was not there for the Frank and Christina stuff. Dorbal and Lugo specifically didn't have Stevenson Pierre or Carl Weeks be involved because they felt like they couldn't trust him anymore.
2: So No, no, no. Dwayne Johnson is Paul Doyle.
3: Okay. So he was an amalgamation of correct what I read, Carl Weeks, and then like two other people. Correct. But yes. yeah, he wasn't... That character itself wasn't even really there, yes, in real life, yeah, yes. for any of it. So,
2: so it's like you could easily do things like take creative liberties to be more, even maybe even funnier or more empathetic and less harmful. But yeah, I'm sorry. I think they needed sorry, to ch- the rock.
3: They needed to change a lot of stuff about the how they portray the murders of Frank and Christina, namely the names of the characters.
2: <laughs> yeah, pretty easy. That's pretty <laughs> easy. to
3: make it not quite as. Um, just like black and white as to what really happened
2: no my final thoughts are that i love the rock always and i'm sorry
3: we do love the rock yes he does seem like a very uh very nice man and he loves french bulldogs (laughs) go follow him on instagram well that's part two of our two-part series thank you again to shelly for the recommendation thank you thank you yes um this was a very interesting one and one that I had never heard of, i had never yeah. heard of the movie or, or this story. So I always like when I'm introduced to something brand new. And jaw dropping. Yes. Because <laughs> I, I didn't know that underlying story at like, all. where you're like, Christ Almighty, what? What is happening? Yeah. I always, when I did read this stuff, I'm like, how did I not know about this? Because For it was sure.
2: so wild. And shout out to the Miami Times because they, man, excellent reporting mm-hmm, and in
3: depth. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. Yep, yep, yep. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show.
2: As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive video and audio content, including some fun new additions that we have begun rotating in along with our mixed bags, something called The Wheel.
3: Mm, The Wheel. And... There are sound effects that Tommy has mixed in. <laughs> to, uh, it's someone on Patreon was like, "I am loving the laser sound effects for the wheel." I feel you like have to. it's like a game show.
2: I was gonna say, I feel like my dreams of being like a morning radio show person has come true,
3: and mine of being a game show host done so, and done. Yeah, Tommy,
2: you know what? That's why you married him. He makes dreams come true.
3: <laughs> you also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We'll also be hopping on occasionally and hosting monthly Q&As where you can ask us all your burning questions.
2: For patrons not in the U.S., you also have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of conversion fees. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available.
3: Those that select this billing option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon in the top right corner to join today. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-outs. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch.
2: Keep those pictures coming. We recently added a new tote bag design and socks. It's also wintertime, so it's time to grab some hoodies. You maybe get a beanie hat or even a mug for all your delicious hot cocoa or hot coffee. If you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like any of those things, head to Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop in the top right corner.
3: The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps small podcasts like us get more exposure.
2: You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on
3: Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, I'm on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and I'm on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I'm on Instagram at Heather vs. the World and on Twitter
2: at MCK vs. the World. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey everybody, thank you so much for supporting the Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Jessica Croft
3: Kendall Zavodny Brenna Guinea Katie Martin Alice Mead Samantha D. Dubois Ira Babb Savannah Miles Molly Janain Cam Katie Cruzy, Jenna Garrison Rebecca Jones Kara Pinciotti Amanda Roop Amber Potterbomb Danielle Guadarama. Tony Moni. Eliza G. Melissa Huddleston. Lindsay Griffith, Danielle Trudeau. Chrissy Van Mierlo. Suzanne Summers. The happened. Suzanne Summers. It finally happened. Either way, we love you. Joan O'Brien. Christine Rowland. Laura Navalalalainen. And Brittany Cirillo. Thank you guys so much for supporting the Patreon, especially during these trying times. We couldn't do it without you. We sincerely appreciate it. We're sorry if we botched your name. If you ever want your name pronounced um a certain way, do what Brittany Cirillo did and put in little parentheses. This is how you pronounce my last name. That We love that because then we don't have to say, oh, gosh, we hope we're not making anyone upset. But regardless, we love you. Thank you so much. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed.
2: computer solitaire
0: huh oh sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino style
1: games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere